Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this episode, Fight Back editor Alex Grant discusses who pays for the capitalist crisis in Canada. Who pays? That is the vital question in front of us, in front of Canadian economy, Canadian politics, world economy, world politics, who pays? That is the question that is going to determine the developments over the coming years. Who pays for this crisis? This incredible crisis of COVID, but this general crisis of capitalism. Who pays? And the question of who pays is also the driver, the major driver of most revolutions in human history, whether it was the English Revolution, the French Revolution, uh, the American Revolution, again and again, who pays is the issue that came up. Because the bourgeois don't want to pay, the ruling class don't want to pay, they want to make the workers pay. And the workers will only accept so much. And the workers will only accept the burden for the crisis of the system to a certain degree until there is a mass explosion. So that is is the key question that we have to get our heads around of when will this question be resolved of who pays for the crisis. Now we are nine months into the COVID lockdown in the West, into the pandemic. And we are in the midst of a second wave that is far worse than the first wave, far, far worse. And almost unanimously in every uh, capitalist country, they have not done any of the necessary uh, precautions to stop the second wave. They could have ramped up testing, ramped up tracing, ramped up all of the necessary precautions. In long-term care, they could have provided the staffing and none of this. And now there is a, a new wave of infections and a new wave of deaths, totally unavoidable, totally, totally unavoidable. The, the fact people have talked about, you know, what kind of recovery is there going to be? Is there going to be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, uh, an L-shaped recovery, uh, all of these things? Well, what we're mostly seeing is what's known as a K-shaped recovery, that the rich go up and the poor go down, that there's this divergence. And, and, and And you've seen that in Canada, the same as every other country on the planet. In fact, in Canada, the top 20 richest billionaires added $37 billion to their wealth uh, during the period of COVID. Incredible. While the workers are just surviving, the workers are just hanging on for dear life, uh, massive unemployment, uh, relying upon various supports, and there's a wave of tent cities and homelessness. Uh, workers are just hanging on and, and facing the worst of the pandemic. And uh, the, the bourgeois are totally heartless, totally heartless. They just sacrifice the workers. So it's like sacrificing to the god of Mammon that they uh, putting the workers into the grinder and as long as the profits keep flowing. In fact, statistics have come out that if you are rich, you are six times less likely to get infected than if you were poor. And that doesn't say anything about mortality rates. So again, if you're poor, you're far more likely to die. You're far more likely to have uh, serious uh, complications from COVID than if you're rich. Like Donald Trump said, oh no, it was no problem getting uh, COVID. Well, of course, he had the latest experimental drugs that aren't accessible to the general population and he had the best conditions 
the best conditions. Whereas if you're stuck in poor housing, poor nutrition, uh, poor conditions, all the rest of it, you're going to have a much worse outcome than the bourgeois. So that there is one COVID for the rich and another COVID for the poor. And, and, and you're seeing the world of work being a major driver of infection. Uh, the region of Peel, just outside of Toronto, uh, Brampton, which is known as a, a, a concentration of working class people and Southeast Asian population, that this has the worst COVID rates in Ontario, is uh, Brampton and Peel and that region. And of course, the, the reactionaries start coming up with all these racist explanations of why Brampton's doing badly, you know, the multi-generational families, big uh, uh, weddings and, and stuff like that. Total racism, total, utter lack of any scientific basis behind any of these claims. What the difference is that Brampton has industry. Brampton has manufacturing and essential services. Brampton has the airport, Toronto Pearson Airport. That uh, uh, so major focus of infection, and the bourgeois don't care. They don't care for the workers. They don't care if uh, there's yeah that those rates of infection, and uh, and what they end up doing is in inside the factories there isn't the social social uh, separation there isn't the necessary PPE. So people get infected on the assembly line. But even if, even if they do everything correctly, which they don't, even if they did everything correctly, it is the general social conditions that lead to the spread of COVID. Because you know, low pay, shift work, well, that forces these workers to come in on crowded transit or carpool. Everyone in that car gets affected, infected, or they go, they go home, they live in high rises, that you know, everything they do leads to uh, increasing those infection rates. So the racist answers are bunk. Uh, it is capitalist profiteering and industry. That's where this is coming from. And that's where this is being driven. Uh, so what's happening? So they're, they're uh, totally sacrificing the workers, but there haven't been mass explosions in Canada. And, uh, and one of the reasons for this is that there's been significant government handouts. There has been the CERB or CRB payment to the workers, about $2,000 per month. And, but there's also been massive corporate bailouts. And the right-wing media like focusing on CERB. So like, oh my God, you know, lazy CERB claimants, like this is what they really care about. But in terms of the actual value of bailouts, it is 10 to one for every $1 given to a worker, $10 are given to bosses in forms of bailouts. That uh, it's, it's either wage subsidies or interest-free loans, forgivable loans uh, to the value of uh, you know, $700 billion. There's actually a secret fund of $700 billion uh, to be given to big corporations. And they're just sucking this up. Uh, and the, uh, the wage subsidies are the same value as the CERB, but no one complains about that because it's going to the bourgeois, it's going to the bosses. And, uh, but all of this corporate welfare, it's not sustainable. It cannot continue inevitably, in, in, indefinitely. Now, and, and to go along with the secrecy, let's go back to Brampton, you're getting all of these uh, outbursts of, the, you know, the virus, well, they're keeping it secret exactly where uh, there's these uh, locuses of infection. 
They're not, uh, they're not revealing this. And what's even more scandalous is that the corporate media are going along with this. That, you know, you get getting 50, 100, 200 people infected in a, in a workplace. And, and, and this comes out so, uh, in these figures, but then they refuse to say which workplace. They can't name and shame. And well, the government is doing that to protect the bosses, but also the media is doing that. And it's not as if there's been a court order saying you can't publish this stuff. This is just a decision of the government, but the corporate media is going along, going along with this. So I, I don't know why you don't get a good uh, investigative journalist. You know, there's gonna be like hundreds of people either infected or in um, quarantine. And it wouldn't be that hard to sort of do some research and find out where these points of infection are. Uh, but then you, here you see the media and the state collaborating to protect the capitalists, utterly scandalous. So we're seeing these bailouts, but it is largely wasted money. Like I'll give, I'll give you an example, Leon's, the furniture chain. It uh, managed to get a th $30 million handout from the wage subsidy. What did they do with that handout? Well, they restructured, they closed some uh, shops, they laid off uh, a bunch of workers, and then they gave $24 million dividend to their shareholders. So there's nothing productive about any of this. There's nothing productive at all. It's totally wasted money. So for half of the businesses that are getting handout, they don't need it. They absolutely don't need it. It is just a transfer of wealth to the rich. And the other half of the businesses that are getting handouts, well, they're dead anyway. They're going to die. They are, all they are surviving on is government handouts. They are, they are what is known as zombie corporations. That, that uh, they're going around, in fact, there's the, wide scale statistics around this, that they're actually the bankruptcy rates have gone down. Bankruptcy rates have gone down, but uh, the number of corporations pay, uh, contributing to payroll has gone down by 100,000 corporations. 100,000 corporations have just disappeared, right? They're not, pay they're not paying any workers but they also haven't uh, gone bankrupt. How do you explain this? They are living off the government handouts. They live it. So, and, and, and so this is a, an epidemic of zombie corporations. No one knows how deep it goes. And, and the, the, between the zombies and the corporations that don't need the money is a very, very narrow sector of court where the handouts make the difference between them surviving the pandemic and thriving in the future um, versus if they didn't receive that money, they'd go under right now. It's an incredibly minor uh, amount, but that the handouts are getting no economic benefit in terms of the wage subsidies, in terms of the interest-free and forgivable loans or, or anything like that. And CERB is also not a solution. SERB is not a solution. The $2,000 a month is not a solution. This spends approximately three seconds in the hand of the worker before it is snatched away by the landlord in rent, by the credit card company in interest payments, or by Galen Weston in uh, expenses for groceries. So this, this is the, uh, the, the fundamentally unsustainable nature of all of these bailouts and handouts. But we should remember, COVID did not cause this crisis. COVID didn't cause the crisis. The crisis was well underway and in preparation before COVID hit, before COVID hit. COVID didn't cause the crisis. In fact, you know, you read our literature a year and more ago, we were explaining exactly how a classic capitalist crisis of overproduction was being prepared. And we said it just needed one spark, one thing to set it off. One smallest, the smallest thing 
Well, the thing that set it off wasn't that small. It was COVID, is a crisis in and of itself. But there is a classical cri capitalist crisis of overproduction, uh, which is exi uh, shown through uh, overcapacity that is ongoing and is, has not been resolved, has not been solved. And uh, when COVID uh, ends, you know, we hear talk about uh, vaccines, who knows when they are going to get uh, mass distribution, you know, whether it's next summer or next fall or uh, even later, who knows, but eventually the world will come out of this of, and, and that distribution of the vaccine will be inequitable. The rich will get it first and rich countries will get it first uh, before the poor. You can guarantee that. That's the, the law of capitalism rather than what, what would benefit society as a whole the most. But eventually we'll come out to this. But it's not as if the economy will flower at that point. No, there's still the old crisis of production that would be under unresolved. Crisis overproduction exacerbated by all of the debt that they've added during this crisis and before. Uh, what they're doing is this year in Canada, there's approximately $350 billion of deficit, historically the highest deficit in Canadian history. This amounts to uh, approximately 19% of GDP which is higher than most OECD countries. I think the average for the OECD is something like a 16% uh, deficit. And, uh, and in addition to that, they're printing money, so-called quantitative easing, to the value of $5 billion a week. $5 billion a week of uh, uh, purely uh, imaginary money. They're just printing. Uh, although they, they do it in a way that it, it goes to the big banks and the big corporations first. So it doesn't, isn't given to working class people. But how can they manage this? How can they, because normally you'd expect printing money and deficit finances to be massively inflationary. And it hasn't been inflationary. And, and there hasn't been a massive crisis in terms of government funding, in terms of being able to, uh, uh, cope with the deficit financing because actually interest rates are historically low. They're uh, massively low. And so even though on a higher debt basis, the debt servicing, your credit card, monthly credit card payments of the government are actually down because of histor historically low interest rates. And it's, not, and it's not been inflationary right away because if it wasn't for the printing of money, there would be massive deflation. There would be a massive decrease in prices. So it's, uh, you know, and you saw this during the Great Depression. You saw this during the Great Depression, or uh, decrease in prices that between 1929 and 1933, uh, deflation was anything between five to 10% uh, annually, meaning prices went down not inflation price, prices went up and that and they had a, a, a laissez-faire approach the government stayed out of the crisis let corporations go bankrupt let bank banks go under you know over 4000 banks in the united states went under between uh, 29 and 33 that that was the approach the deflationary approach in the great depression whereas now they have a monetarist approach where there's socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor, that this is the K-shaped recovery, that the rich, the bankers, the bosses are being bailed out. And instead of the deflation that you got in the Great Depression, inflation has been roughly flat, that the two elements are being counteracting. The redu you know, if you print money, you re reduce the value of money. And, uh, but you've also got a crash in uh, demand. Supply is way higher than demand, which pushes prices down and doesn't let the reduced value of money result in actual inflation. Uh, but although there have been inflation in certain areas, 
that the TSX, for example, the Toronto Stock Exchange, has just recovered all of its 2020 losses. So you'd think that in this crisis, the stock market would be down. It did crash, but now it's recovered on the basis of all this corporate welfare. So there has been an inflation in stock prices. And that explains a lot of the transfer of wealth to the rich, is this inflation in stock prices. And uh, that, uh, well, there hasn't been inflation in the general economy yet, yet. Um, so this brings us back to, you know, eventually, eventually supply will come back into balance with demand. Prices will again reflect value and reflect the diluted value of money, at which point interest rates, debt servicing fees and inflation will rise. And that's the point where who pays becomes a vital question. May, un may underline the point that inflation is saying that the workers pay because workers get paid the same, but everything is twice as expensive. So an inflationary policy is saying that the workers pay. In fact, the inflationary policy was the driving force of the class struggle of the 1970s, that the Keynesianist methods, deficit financing, printing money, et cetera, led to significant inflation, uh, you know, some in, above 10% in many capitalist countries, and, and, and some countries hyperinflation and while well, wages stayed the same and that led to a wave of class struggle as workers were trying to catch up in wages with the rising cost of living. So for all of those uh, so-called lefts who believe in so-called uh, uh, MMT, they think that stands for modern monetary theory, but in fact, it stands for magic money tree uh, this uh, leads to inflation, that there is no magic, magic money tree. You cannot just create money out of nothing. Money represents value. Money represents real wealth. And if there's more paper or more uh, digital uh, representation of that wealth, that merely dilutes the value of that paper uh, or those bits on a computer. That's all it does. That's all it does. In fact, uh, Tommy Douglas had uh, quite a good quote about this. Uh, in 1942, I think he said this, uh, in, in reference to, you know, there was many sort of magical money creation schemes in the Great Depression. Uh, but he, he, you know, Tommy Douglas said, well, Houdini used to uh, pull rabbits out of a hat, but he never tried to make money from selling those rabbits that he pulled out of his hat. See, that's a very good criticism of this magic money tree, this modern monetary theory, uh, printing money idea that at the end of the day means make the workers pay, make the workers pay through inflation. And so that is unacceptable to us. And uh, what we say in opposition to this inflationary policy is, make the bosses pay, make the bosses pay, no bailouts, only nationalizations, only expropriations. In fact, the money being gifted to these corporations, direct gifts, plus tax cuts, plus wage theft, plus uh, you know, all of these sort of preferential backhanded ways of giving them money, uh, it shouldn't be given a penny of compensation for them being taken over because they've been paid for a hundred times over by the state. They've been paid for. So, and the fact that there's, you know, a 10 to one ratio of bailouts versus money to workers really does express the contradiction here that people will say, well, why aren't we why aren't we owning this? Why are you keeping the corporate uh, back? You know the, the the corporate failures in control of the economy when they can't run it at a profit. They're just living off handouts. 
that and that raises the demand for nationalization raises the demand for workers control raises the demand for socialist planning and 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 we have to be at the forefront of that demand raising uh, expressing that contradiction because they're going to come to the workers and say oh no no we can't we, we can't continue racking up the debt we can't continue doing this you're going to have to pay it's like what do you mean for every dollar the workers got the boss has got 10 they must pay and we'd expropriate take them over and run society for need and not for profit this has got to be a central part of our agitation not universal basic income not uh not, not even tax the rich for that matter uh, be, uh because you know tax the rich what are you taxing they're not making they they they're just sucking in a uh, uh, bailouts right now no take them over take them over put them under workers control this is the way to solve the pandemic crisis it's the way to solve the pandemic because the workers themselves know whether it's safe or not whether it's essential or not that it the workers must decide that and uh, and then if something's genuinely essential workers should get double hazard pay if it's not genuinely essential then workers shut it down at full pay stop the pandemic this is a this is essential and nationalization is the only solution no mix messing around with schemes like ubi um, so eventually this contradiction will come and they will try to remove the serb or crb or, or whatever uh, survival mechanism for workers but this is like you know the saying of uh, you know riding the dragon that uh, the problem comes when you have to step off the bourgeois have set this up but the social effects of uh, removing the uh, uh, the support to working class people are massive you you have millions of people thrown out of their subsistence that has that has revolutionary implications just on itself so eventually must decide who pays um now this can be delayed for a certain period it can it can be delayed that uh, you know they put 350 billion dollars on uh, of deficit this year 19% of gdp wouldn't be surprised if they put another 350 billion dollars another 19% of gdp next year they they could do that for one year two years maybe three years but the bigger the delay the bigger the debt bill uh the bigger they are the harder they fall uh, and eventually this contradiction needs to be resolved cannot be avoided nothing can be cannot be avoided somebody's going to have to pay all right but does this mean class peace until this is resolved does that mean they're just going to continue delaying and delaying and delaying no not at all there is plenty of combustible material that mass struggle could literally burst out anywhere you know from the injustice of covid petty profiteering in the pandemic racism police violence the indigenous struggle uh, evictions tent cities anything anything literally could be a spark for a a new wave of struggle because it's not as if the current conditions are good uh it just means that there is this wall that cannot be avoided uh and the and the yeah the hypocrisy of bailouts in failed capitalism it shows that capitalism doesn't work but this serves to polarize the situation massively all right but what is the other what are the other equations in terms of the class struggle it's not just a factor of the objective injustices and exploitation of the masses it is also the question of subjective organization subjective organization truly matters and in and th in that equation the workers movement is seriously lacking in a subjective factor in subjective leadership the union leadership are doing 
everything in their power to stop the struggle of the workers. Absolutely everything in their power to stop, stop the struggle of the workers. And the NDP, New Democratic Party, are doing everything in their power to prop up the Liberals. In fact, the NDP have got more confidence in the Liberals than the Liberals have in themselves. The, the Liberals are trying to engineer their own defeat, engineer their own no confidence vote in themselves. And the NDP said, no, 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 you must stay in power. Yeah, we have confidence in you, even if you don't have it in yourselves. So it's ridiculous, utterly ridiculous. You know, Trotsky mentioned this in it's key, the key point of the transitional program, the, uh, the crisis of society is the crisis of working class leadership, and it has never been worse, never been worse than this. In fact, the, the NDP actually proposed the wage subsidy program. They're bragging about this. They brag that they proposed the wage subsidy program, which is the main gift of the corporations. Scandalous, totally scandalous. They, they should be uh, totally ashamed. And they, uh, when it came to a confidence vote, they capitulated for minor changes uh, to Serb and allowed the, uh, the Liberals to regain their support. That the Liberals were very low. And if, you know, uh, if the NDP had actually put forward socialist policies and talked about the failure of capitalism and the need for nationalization, workers' control, that only the capitalism has failed and only the workers can solve the crisis of COVID, then uh, the, the Liberals would have been in a desperate position. But instead, the, the NDP just appeared as the left wing of the Liberal Party, you know, all the same stuff as the Liberals, just uh, at you know, ten or twenty percent uh, more expensive. Then, uh, it's is it a surprise that the Liberals have recovered and the NDP uh, are doing very badly? In fact, yeah, Trudeau is trying to engineer his his own defeat of the minority government so that can have a snap election and get that majority to could give him an easier hand for the austerity to come. Right. And, you know, the NDP messing around with various little reforms, whether it is like one thing they propose is a one percent tax on wealth above uh, 20 million dollars. Well, and, and this is just so pathetic to be laughable. It, it'll bring you know, if the bourgeois don't hide their money and take it all to the Cayman Islands. It's, it's expected to get uh, somewhere around $5 billion. We should remind ourselves that they've been printing $5 billion every week in quantitative easing. So $5 billion a year. So it's pathetically small. Uh, you can do very, very little with that money. But their logic is, is that if you, you know, actually the, the criticism of tax the rich, it's correct criticism that we uh, explain, if you tax the rich, they won't invest. Uh, and that is a right-wing criticism of the reformists, but it's one that expresses the contradiction of capitalism. If you tax the rich, they will not invest. It is true. It is utterly true uh, as long as they maintain ownership, which is why we call for nationalization, workers' control, socialist plan of production. Um, but the, uh, the NDP bureaucrats have taken this uh, idea of if you tax them, they they won't invest. So, all right, we will tax them by such a small amount that the cost of tax evasion, 1% on 20 million, is, is more than just paying the tax. But they, they seriously underestimate the pettiness and the vindictiveness of the bourgeois who are gonna hide the money anyway because they'd rather give it to tax lawyers than they would to the, to the state, especially to uh, an NDP government. So, uh, they're not going to get that money. And, and the other things they put forward is, you know, uh, yeah, it's a wealth, you know, a, a pandemic um, sort of windfall tax, like a, a tax on, on uh, uh, profits during the pandemic and to double the uh, corporate tax rate. But that's just taking the corporate tax rate from 15 to 30 percent. This is uh, these profiteers shouldn't get any of that money. It's. It's just pathetic. And the other thing is UBI, universal basic income, which Rob's gonna go into in the next session. 
but uh, you know the fact that the right wing of the NDP and the left wing of the Liberals support this thing tells you it is not a radical demand, right? It, do it doesn't solve the problem and it doesn't solve the question of who pays. At the end of the day, somebody needs to pay, right? So you're either taking it from the bourgeois and if, you're, if it's just tax the rich, well, uh, they won't invest or you're taking it from the workers, you're cutting wages, you're cutting social programs, you're cutting uh, whatever else. At the end of the day, somebody has to pay. So it seems quite likely there's gonna be an election next year. Uh, Trudeau is gonna do everything in his power to uh, engineer one, and, but, but it's totally impossible to predict the result. Totally possible to predict uh, the result. But, uh, the reality is that uh, things have developed so much that you, you've got this betrayal of the uh, the workers' leaders, the and, and actually and talk about the labour movement. Oh my God! So you've got the CLC supporting Morneau for head of the OECD. The, the degree of uh, that degree of uh, bankruptcy was even too much for the other bureaucrats who denounced it. But it's the entire logic of the system. Uh, but the reality is, with the degree of anger in, the so in society, if there was a socialist leadership of the unions and the NDP, Canada would be entering a pre-revolutionary situation right now. But instead, there are no answers. Nobody's talking about nationalization. Nobody with a platform is talking about nationalization and workers' control. And so the, the movement is listless looking for an outlet. There's all this anger looking for an outlet and, 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 and it cannot find, find it. If you think of it, the class anger is like the, the pressure of magma under a volcano, right? Uh, I hope comrades uh, remember their high school geography lessons, that you've you got your volcano and the, and the liquid magma underneath. And typically, the, uh, the eruption will occur up the main shaft that will go and, and the, uh, uh, the lava will come out of the top of the volcano. And the analogy here is that the main shaft of the workers' political representation in Canada, the main volcano, is the NDP, or has been the NDP. You've got the central vent. But you can get what's known as a volcanic plug on top of that vent, that when the, the last movement ends, the uh, uh, rock forms and, and plugs up that vent. And, and sometimes it's easier for the pressure to be released through a side vent or even form a totally new volcano. And the NDP bureaucracy is that volcanic plug there that there are a, an incredible barrier to the movement of the workers going through the NDP. You saw again and again left-wing candidates, pro-Palestinian candidates blocked from the NDP. You had uh, you know votes for free education at the NDP convention, which are then totally ignored by the leadership. And, and so that radical youth and workers currently do not look to the NDP. The, the class uh, nature of the party has not changed. It is what Lenin called a bourgeois workers' party. It's a leadership directly or indirectly connected with the bourgeois and putting forward pro-capitalist policies, but as a ranks based upon the working class, based upon the trade unions and a, a historical commitment to socialism. Well, that still continues that still continues, but that doesn't mean that the movement of the workers is automatically going to go through the NDP. And being blocked there, being blocked there, it, the movement looked for any outlet. And uh, with that, you saw a very interesting develop, development in the Green Party leadership contest where uh, Dimitri Laskaris, and Mariam Haddad and the eco-socialists got 45% of the vote in the last round of voting in the Green uh, 
leadership election and 10,000 votes. This is a very significant symptom of the crisis in society, of the uh, that there is an entire layer of radicalized workers and youth looking for a political outlet. And if the NDP won't provide that outlet, well, then uh, maybe the Greens will or anything else will. There, there is this groundswell in society looking for an outlet. And, and we should view this as a very important sim symptomatic event, uh, this victory. Now, we appealed to Lascaris and Haddad and the eco-socialists to form a broad socialist movement. Like, they're correct. Canada needs socialism on the ballot. It needs a socialist party. And it really doesn't matter whether it's the Green Party, the NDP, or something new, uh, that uh, they desperately needs a party putting forward nationalization, workers' control, socialist plan of production, and the fact that capitalism has failed. Desperate, and that would be hugely popular. But um, we recommended, we, we wrote an article that was very popular, got, uh, was widely discussed about which way forward for the eco-socialist movement after the Green leadership election. And we appealed to Lascaris and Cole to uh, form this movement that was open to both eco-socialists and the Greens, socialists in the NDP, socialist trade unionists, and unaffiliated socialists to build that movement amongst a, a, a series of common demands, a united front over a series of common socialist anti-capitalist demands and put them forward in all of those venues, whether it was the Green Party, the NDP, the unions, or, or, or an open appeal to, uh, to radical youth. And, um, uh, and, and that could have brought people together, got people working together, and, and you'd see which one was most successful, which area of the battlefield was most successful. And upon that basis, now, maybe you take over the Greens, maybe you take over the NDP. And I, why I mean take over, I mean win a majority for these ideas in these parties. Or, or maybe this movement um, attracts a mass following outside. And, and that would be the launch pad to forming a, uh, an anti-capitalist socialist uh, formation. Uh, sadly, uh, Lascaris didn't agree with us. And now they're organizing as a loyal left opposition within the Green Party, which uh, we don't think is going to fly because while the NDP is uh, what we call a bourgeois workers party, it, is, it has a base in the workers and the trade unions. The, the Green Party is a petty bourgeois party. Uh, the Anime Paul leadership is very right wing. Is, there's no difference between Anime Paul and uh, the, the, the bureaucracy of the NDP. Absolutely no difference, um, apart from you know personal antipathy. That uh, and the the Green Party is not based upon the workers. The fact is actually, if you if you do opinion polls of Green voters, Green voters are significantly to the right of NDP voters and to the right of Liberal voters. I may add, um, regardless of what the platform of the two parties are. Like the difference between the NDP bureaucracy and the Green bureaucracy is that the NDP bureaucracy is to the right of NDP voters. The Green bureaucracy is actually to the left of Green voters. That they basically have the, uh, the same politics, those two bureaucracies. And so as a terrain of struggle, the Green Party is not the best terrain. And, uh, but who knows what's going to happen? Let's, uh, the eco-socialists aren't going anywhere. And... Uh, and maybe they'll be expelled. They'll be expelled for a sort of anti-Semitism. They've already tried to use the anti-Semitism slur against Lascaris, same as they've used against Corbyn. It's absolutely vital that the left not show the weakness of uh, the, uh, the, the left of the British Labour Party and, of, and the Corbyn movement in terms of uh, standing up to these uh, anti-Semitism slurs. Vital that the left does not fall into anti-Semitic tropes, absolutely. But this is being used as a stick to beat the left. It's ridiculous and totally hypocritical by the right wing. You had Stephen Harper going to far right groups, far right anti-Semitic groups in Ukraine. 
you had uh, Rob Ford hugging anti-Semite, fascist or far-right, alt-right uh, individuals. This is yeah, sca scandalous that these this right wing can pretend it's the defender of the Jewish people. It, it, it's a joke. It's a sick joke. And, uh, and, the, and the left should show absolutely no weakness to that. While also, look, you, being very careful not to fall into anti-Semitic tropes, it is not necessary to blame Jews. Jews are not responsible for the state of Israel. Absolutely. The Jewish people are not responsible for the state of Israel. In fact, the state of Israel is the exploiter and the oppressor, the Jewish ruling class. So the, the Israeli ruling class is the oppressor of the Jewish people. Uh, so we cannot uh, fall into this. But explosions can literally happen anywhere. Who knows where the eco-socialists will end up? Yes, they might be expelled. Uh, new movements may happen. And explosions can literally happen anywhere. And Marxists must be ready to uh, positively engage with any, any movement, any mass movement of the workers, recognize its progressive elements and its confused or reactionary elements and uh, intervene to promote the progressive side of the movement and patiently explain the need to overthrow capitalism, the need for workers' organization, the need for revolutionary Marxist organization to support those movements and help them to win. And, and so we don't know exactly where things will blow up. We know things will blow up and we must be prepared to intervene as necessary. Although one focus, one area to focus on, on a likely area of struggle is Alberta. Alberta, who would have thought that we would be identifying Alberta as the center of revolutionary struggle in Canada, right? Uh, Alan Woods's favorite uh, Bible quote, and the first shall become last and the last shall become first, right? That Alberta, Canada's Texas, you know, Regneck Alberta is now on the front lines on, of the class struggle. And that, and that just shows you, uh, actually, ironically, for all of those um, Francophiles, that uh, talk about how Quebec is, uh, the Quebec, uh, Quebecois people are organically more revolutionary than uh, the rest of the Canadian population. It's frankly a racist argument. Um, there's nothing special about the Quebec people. They're wonderful people, uh, but the, in terms of the class struggle, there's nothing special about them. But in fact, the movement in Quebec has been in the doldrums for the last five years, has been, uh, far lower than uh, previous, whereas the movement in Alberta is going up and up. Why? Well, there's objective and subjective reasons behind this. The objective reason is Alberta has fundamentally changed. It is not the redneck backwater of Ralph Klein and earlier of, uh, uh, with, with a undeveloped class consciousness. No, Alberta has a developed working class with a class consciousness. And you know, they talk about the development of class consciousness, that the, the workers start off as raw material for exploitation, but then develop consciousness and go from a class in itself to a class for itself. And the pivotal point in this change in class consciousness was the election of the NDP in 2015. This showed that Alberta had moved to more classic class politics, like Ontario, like Quebec, like BC. And, uh, and, and even though the uh, Notley NDP totally betrayed, that hadn't changed the, the fundamental class basis of Alberta politics. What was, what was very interesting is that despite the betrayal of the, uh, the Notley leadership, that the NDP still got over 30% of the vote. It was a very healthy vote. It was actually higher than the NDP in uh, almost every other, I think it was the, the highest uh, vote for the NDP in any uh, province they didn't win government. So 
it, it showed that the caste politics are all there. But Jason Kenney thinks he lives in Ralph Klein's Alberta. He thinks he, he thinks he's the king of the oil barons and doesn't have to worry about the working class. And so he's just attacking and attacking and attacking, you know, 11,000 uh, full-time equivalents cut from healthcare in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, this ridiculous uh, right-wing Republican Trumpite ideological approach to the pandemic. Oh, oh personal responsibility, personal responsibility. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, Margaret Thatcher says there's no such thing as society. We're all just a bunch of floating individuals. Well, the pandemic shows that's totally false. And the fact is that now Alberta has the worst incidence of COVID that actually the, not just the rate of COVID in Alberta, but on some days, the literal, the total absolute number of infections are highest in Alberta uh, than anywhere else in the country, even though Alberta has a third of the population of Ontario and half the population of Quebec. It's astounding. Uh, and, and, his, and whereas there was a COVID boost in popularity for most premiers in, in Alberta, now Kenny is desperately hated and is behind the NDP in the polls. So th th this actually expresses, there is a, now a, a movement towards a general strike. Uh, will there be a general strike in Alberta? Hard to tell. Depends on how stupid Kenny is, to be honest on whether or not there will be a general strike. Uh, some people say, well, you know, the, the leader of, leadership of the Alberta uh, unions, uh, they're no better than the leadership of the unions in the rest of the country, uh, which is true, which is true. There's not gonna be a general strike in Alberta because of the leadership of the Alberta unions, but there might be one despite them, if the pressure and the anger of the working class mean that uh, uh, the movement Get, needs that expression has extended to that level. And I may add the fact that the forces of Marxism have doubled in Alberta in the last year is not an accident, is not an accident. And, and we're growing a very good base in Edmonton, developing a base in Calgary and, and, and other sectors and are growing in the West generally. This is a very uh, significant. Well, comrades, I'll bring things to a close. We are in a revolutionary epoch, globally. And, you know, it's wrong to say we are entering into a revolutionary epoch. We are smack bang in the middle of it. Uh, you saw the, way, the revolutionary wave at, in the second half of 2019. That was even before the pandemic. The pandemic cut across that a little bit, but none of the, uh, the feelings None of, none of the anger has gone away. In fact, it's all been accentuated. So country after country will be rocked by revolutionary movements and Canada will not be immune from that virus, from the virus of revolution. The indigenous population in Canada is already in open re revolt. I haven't had time to talk about it here, but we've talked about it elsewhere, but it will spread to other sectors. The indigenous population are only uh, sort of four or five percent of the Canadian population. But unlike previous indigenous movements, uh, where they didn't get much uh, solidarity from the broader population, now there's large scale support from, for the indigenous movement because people see them fighting the same enemy, the same capitalism, the same state, the same corporate profiteers. So, the, the, that, is a, that is a point of struggle, um, but it will spread to other sectors. I guarantee you, it will absolutely spread to other sectors, but it needs organization. Anger is not enough. Pure spontaneity is not enough. You know, so-called sort of uh, Luxembourgism from Rosa Luxemburg who put the emphasis on spontaneity. Yes, there is spontaneous movement of the masses, the spontaneous movement and anger of the masses. We rely upon the democratic control of the workers and the creativity of the workers and oppressed and young people to be the motor force of revolution. But that motor has no power unless it's part of an engine, of a structure, right? 
And that's why where organization comes in, political organization, union organization. Uh, it needs revolutionary organization. And that's where the international Marxist tendency, fight back, Larapa socialist, come in. Needs organization. And, and on the basis of this revolutionary epoch that uh, we are in, movements outside of Canada will have their reflection in, and, and the movement within Canada will have its own emphasis at the same time. But it's not an accident that with our correct ideas and correct methods, now the IMT is the largest revolutionary organization in Canada. From being the smallest, people used to make fun of us. Now we are the largest revolutionary organization and we're actually uh, on the cusp of becoming the largest Trotskyist organization in Canadian history. It's not a very high bar to be honest, but uh, it's uh, something that we would be very proud to uh, surpass. That uh, this, you know, we need to take the energy of the youth, the, uh, unite it with the working class and organize it. And, and we're already having some important successes that we were the leading impetus in May Day in Toronto, we're the leading impetus in an anti-capitalist uh, Labor Day in Montreal, and, and we played a significant role, role in the uh, hospital Wildcats in Alberta. We are starting to play a role in real world activity, not just abstract theory, not to denigrate theory. You must unite the theory with the revolutionary practice. And, that, and therefore we need to go out and challenge all reformist ideas in the movement, like UBI, like MMT, and very clearly say, make the bosses pay. Make the bosses pay, nationalization, workers control, no bailouts, don't expropriate uh, the bourgeois expropriate the 1%. And we need to challenge, push back those reformist ideas and educate the cadres that can understand the ideas of revolution, ideas of Marxism, but actually win people over, win uh, numbers in the battle of ideas in the general population and the workers and youth movement. Uh, and, and, and on that basis, we have been attracting the breast fighters from all across the country, uh, not just from Toronto and Montreal, where, which has been our historical base, but all across the country, uh, in the West, in, in the Maritimes, uh, out, you know, in Southern Ontario, in Ottawa, in Kingston, etc. We've been attracting fantastic people from all over who want to get involved. We, this weekend, we are discussing a campaign to move towards a fortnightly paper to, you know, to double the, the, the print rate of fight back. You can do that, that will get, that will make it, make fight back the, the, the genuine Marxist voice of labor and youth. When we first put out the first issue of fight back, people made fun of us for that. What do you mean, the, the Marxist voice of labor and youth? Surely just a Marxist voice of labor, labor and youth. You're just a bunch of kids. And we're like, no, 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 we're the Marxist voice of labor and youth. Um, maybe we were a bit arrogant, maybe we needed to be. Uh, maybe we wouldn't be where we were if we didn't have that uh, incredible Marxist confidence and enthusiasm. That with, without enthusiasm, you can't build anything. And we have enthusiasm in spades, but now not just in uh, the, the quality of the ideas, but the actuality in the mass impact, we are on the verge of being the Marxist voice of labor and youth, yes, we, are, we have been for a long time, but everyone will soon recognize that and it'd be not an argument that anybody would have. And, and to combine that with double, doubling the uh, print frequency, 1,000 subscriptions, 1,000 subscriptions. That would be a fantastic step forward in pushing back the ideas of reformism and advancing the ideas of Marxism and revolution in the workers movement. We need to be present in the struggle in all the major cities, present everywhere, analyzing everywhere. And because Marxism is on the verge of becoming 
a factor in Canadian politics, a factor in the calculations of the bourgeois, that we're not so far away of not being numbered in the hundreds, but being numbered in the thousands. That will make a huge impact, a huge impact. We, and we need to raise ourselves up for that. The comrades here today need to raise themselves up to it, the understanding and the ability to reach people and uh, lead an organization of thousands of people that can make the fundamental change uh, for the working class. We have the right ideas, we have the right methods, let's put them into action, nothing can stop us. Thank you comrades. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.